happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 175 for April 29th, 2020. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus in the Phyllis J. Washington College of Education and Human Sciences in Missoula, Montana. And I am joined, as always, by Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. How are you this evening? I am great, Jason, and I am fascinated by the howling that I'm hearing there. Uh, I am joining you from Oklahoma City, where I am the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School and the fourth or the fifth and sixth grade media literacy and digital literacy teacher. But we do not have a tradition of howling at 8 p.m. So what is the story on that and how long has that been going on? Well, uh, I think it's been four or five weeks and I don't know this for sure, but I think it may have started in Missoula. And I have some evidence from friends that this is happening in Missoula, Montana, Salt Lake, Bozeman, Denver. I've had some Facebook traffic on this, but uh, I, this might have started in western Montana. But basically, 8 p.m. every night, people leave their homes, go to their backyards, their front yards, stand on their porches, their, their doorsteps, and they howl in honor of our medical workers that are on the front lines of COVID-19. And uh, it's, it's, it's pretty entertaining because you can... Uh, right before the show starts tonight, it is just past 8 p.m. Mountain Time, which is where I am joining you from. And Wes had heard my mic was picking up some of the howling in the background. So it's uh, one of the ways we're trying to stay connected with our neighbors uh, during the era of COVID. But my understanding is no Oklahoma uh, howling so far. I, I, it's not in our neighborhood, if if so. So I was saying, you know, you get all kinds of things with uh the neighborhood and the place that you're in. Uh, we had big storms last night. Uh, you know, uh, t- tennis ball size hail, I think, that was just in Yukon about 20 minutes away. So, you know, we got howling in Montana. We got hail in, in Oklahoma. You never know uh, what you're going to get. And you have quite the festive background there. So is that, uh, what, what is that? Uh, it's just a like uh, a mid-century modern funky background pattern. I think that some of the design people call this atomic age backgrounds, but I will tell you that uh, I'm sure the novelty of interesting Zoom and video conferencing backgrounds is starting to fade for a lot of people, but this is one of the ways that I'm trying desperately to stay creative <laughs> during the times of COVID. And what I like about I'm using, I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago, XSplit VidCam, I think is the name of the software, but I can actually put a YouTube background or YouTube video in my background as well. So it's one of the many ways that I'm trying to stay, uh, you know, creative during these times of, of, of interesting career events. Absolutely. Well, uh, I've done actually webinars for our school the last two nights, and uh, I, I went ahead and abandoned the um, the snap camera background for, for last night, and I decided to tonight as well. So, you know, we've got the authentic Hardy Boys and, you know, other uh, lovely books that Wes has never thrown away and probably, you know, probably should have. My wife did. I, I had actually nailed a blanket to the, uh, the window here because during the day, you know, with, even with the blinds, there's, there's a lot of light. So <clears throat> we now have blackout curtains, which are supposed to be put up. And anyway, we're, um, we're anticipating our son coming home, uh, here in a couple weeks, which is going to be exciting, but he will be moving in next door here. So I'm, Planning on still keeping this as my office and uh, going to move out one of the twin beds and uh, move his desk in. So it'll just depend on 
when Houston, Texas opens up for business again, and I guess he can shop for apartments and his uh, new company that he's going to work for will uh, not be working remotely because they're all working remote. But we are probably here to talk about things other than, you know, family updates and howling. What what are we what are we doing here, Doctor Neifer? Well, a little preview. We like to take uh, headlines, kind of rip from the technology media, and take a look at them uh, for our, our an educational lens. And it's it's not hard, especially in in twenty twenty during the the COVID nineteen situation. Take a look at some of the interesting tech things and kind of talk about them through an educational lens. But our broad topics tonight: COVID nineteen, Google ish, connectivity, security privacy, media literacy, and then, of course, we'll share some geeks of the weeks and probably some extra fun stuff, too. So, Wes, uh, is there any particular place you'd like to start tonight, or is there something you want to talk about first? Uh, well, I mean, let's let's start with some Google news. So, um, actually, a couple headlines I saw tonight. Um, this, is a, this is a big deal. So, this is from the Google Products blog today on April 29th. Google Meet Premium Video Conferencing, free for everyone. Now, actually, it's not available yet. It's coming out, and it's and it's uh, you know in the process. I I haven't I haven't logged in to check, but it it sounds like this is uh, this is going to take a little while, perhaps. Maybe I'm thinking about the second article, which was saying you know it was going to depending on whether you were on a stable channel or whatever it was rolling out. Right. Uh, but this is a big deal because you've had to to be part of a G Suite organization in order to use uh, Hangout Meets. Um, as uh, longtime viewers, which I'm sure there are about you know four or five of you out there, uh, we were on Google Hangouts for the first you know huh, hundred plus episodes, and uh, only moved to Streamyard maybe I don't know was it four or five months ago, uh, whenever Google uh, you know stopped allowing Hangout Meets to or sorry Hangouts to be able to stream live uh, to YouTube, and so. Anyway, we have been at school because we're a G Suite organization, uh, primarily using Hangout Meets, especially for our middle school. Um, we've we've been using uh, some other things as well, but this is this is exciting news. And the thing that I would point out about this article, it really we've talked about security, we talked a lot about Zoom the last couple episodes. And so there's a really good section here uh, that's, that's subtitled video meetings built on a secure foundation, but it's talking about not only host controls, but number two is key, not allowing anonymous users without a Google account to join meetings created by individual accounts. And we probably noted that before that if someone else is trying to join your hangout meet video conference and they're not part of your domain at your school, they can't just join as they can if they have the correct link to join Zoom if the room is not locked or to join um, a GoToMeeting or, or other things like that. So anyway, I think the security part of that is important. And as IT professionals or folks involved in educational technology, you know, we have very important responsibilities to attend to the security issues that surround the software that we're utilizing. And I think video conferencing is really gone completely mainstream to where it's a core enterprise function. And you may have just considered, for instance, email, document sharing, calendar, those sorts of things, maybe that everybody needs to be using those things. And, and maybe calendar didn't even fit in that category. Video conferencing is there today. And so uh, while we've got a lot of free tools that are being used by different folks, it is really important um, to, um, you know, attend to the, the security issues and make sure that um, 
I think uh, this is my opinion. If you're if you're talking about core functions for IT, you shouldn't just be on a free tool that your your organization has no recourse for if something goes wrong. And so even though G Suite is free, schools that, that sign up for that have a service level agreement and you're able to get enterprise IT support, et cetera. So anyway, excited to see that. Do you have any sense, Jason, of how many Montana schools are using Hangout Meets versus other tools right now for remote learning? Well, Montana has been experiencing an interesting situation because we had a new data privacy law. Uh, it's uh, It was House Bill 745 or the Montana People Online uh, Personal Protection Act, or as I like to call it, MoPIPA. And MoPIPA passed in the 2019 legislature and uh, became law on, on July 1st, uh, 2019. And it requires some extensive privacy protections for students. But at the same time, there's been a movement to have uh, a vendor sign a pretty extensive agreement that, that goes well beyond the MoPIPA um, uh, a framework. And Zoom, as an example of this, uh, didn't at first uh, assign any agreements with districts, and that meant that people were looking for alternatives. And I don't think Google signed the agreement either, but it had been determined that Google and Microsoft as vendors met the nature of uh, MoPIPA. So one of the things that's happened is that in kind of the, the, the panic over Zoom, there has been a lot of people that have adopted Hangout Meets. As we've talked in the past in the podcast, Hangout Meets, actually just Google Meets now, uh, has evolved pretty dramatically in the last eight weeks. In fact, I think there are a few tools, really, that are out uh, or that have stayed really static in this time with double, triple, quadruple use. Uh, Teams has evolved quite dramatically in the last two months, as has Meets, as has Zoom. And Zoom here, um, when it was determined by some districts they preferred not to use it, turning on Meets and getting to know Meets has been really, really critical. And i got to say, Meets is okay. I mean, I, I at least it was okay, right, for us. And it just so happens I'm on the University of Montana campus, which has an enterprise license to Zoom, so I got used to that platform. But since you can now do what I like to call the Brady Bunch view on Meets, and it always has that beautiful, simple uh, Google interface, which I like a lot. And since I am primarily on a Chromebook, although I spent most of the last six weeks on Windows machine, uh, that uh, it works, you know, like a charm on a Chromebook, I think it's a really great piece of software. And, uh, again, used pretty extensively here. Um, I would say that other than some of the kind of brain candy stuff, like the virtual backgrounds, for example, uh, I would say it has as much functionality um, or close to as much functionality. You can't do breakout rooms, which is a great Zoom feature, but otherwise it's pretty sweet. Let me, yeah, chime in on that because it's, it's so interesting because uh, we've probably mentioned on the show before one of my favorite little phrases when it comes to technology platforms is uh, baby duck syndrome, which yes, you can look that up on Wikipedia. And it's like the baby duck getting imprinted with its mama. You know, some people just had to have smart boards. They would never, you know, never look at anything else, never do a Promethean board. You know, we've had the Mac PC wars and and all kinds of things like that. And so um, when it comes to video conferencing, there, there are definitely core features that you're going to find in all platforms uh, but I have been using Zoom for a Friday morning men's group that I go to uh, at our church. And we've got about 35 guys. And, and I think we've met maybe three weeks now. But two of the features that I really, really like, and I'm actually going to take our Sunday school class this Sunday, and I need to send this out, from GoToMeeting onto Zoom, 
you can rename people. And so <clears throat> when you have people that aren't part of your domain, like when they're all at school or whatever, everyone's got their username that's all been set by IT. That's not a problem. But when you've got people who are not part of the same organization, <laughs> their device name, you know, becomes their name in the conference. And they may be on their spouse's device. They may just be called yeah. iPad. And, you know, when you've got over 30 people in a conference, it's important that you have their, uh, I mean, that's, a, that's an important part of, of just visually everybody's name and stuff. So uh, I like the fact with Zoom that you can rename, but the number one thing I love, and we've done this now twice, is there's a breakout room feature. And so here's a shout out, not that yeah. any Google developer is listening to this at all, uh, but you know, working in groups is really important. And I've noticed our, uh, you know, we've got two two daughters, one a freshman in college and one a 10th grader in high school who are remote learning. And our uh, college daughter has really benefited from some of the group work. I mean, she's formed friendships and is is hanging out outside of class with some of the folks that she's been working in, in groups with. I'm really appreciative of the fact that some of her professors have been using group work. Well, you know, in a Zoom room, uh, it's possible to set it up in advance and you can have this you know, comma separated file that you import and whatever <clears throat> it relies on people logging in and we actually don't have a lot of people log in uh, but it still creates your rooms and what i found is if you're going to do the breakout part a little later i'm the facilitator not the primary teacher of our of our meeting and so i'm able to sit there at the beginning and then just make sure i've got people in the right rooms it's cool because people teleport out to, you know, separate rooms. I first saw this probably back in 2006, and that was for the K-12 online conference. Um, and back in the day, um, yeah, I don't even remember what the name of that platform was. It's the same one they use for um, for K for the uh, uh, Classroom 2.0 Live Forever. Collaborate. Yes, thank you. Peggy's here in the chat, and so she'll, she'll vouch for that. And so um, – that was my first experience because we had some quote fireside chats. Mm -hmm. And as I recall, you know, we were shot out to these different rooms to talk and it happened really quickly, but I mean, Hey, that was back in 2006, you know? And so that is a feature that as far as I know, zoom uh, is unique. Google, you know, hangout meets does not have it. And um, I mean, go to me doesn't have it. And so anyway, that there's definitely yes. core function just kind of like you have with email, but sort of like Gmail was, was awesome. In much better than alternatives because it had threaded messages before a lot of other email platforms did. And, you know, that and, and other things made it just excellent to use. We're not licensing Zoom currently as a school. Um, I, I hope that we that we will uh, because we've got some folks who are using it. And, and again, I my personal view is that if you're using something for a core IT function, you are you're endangering the organization if you're not having a service level agreement to be able to, to have IT support and audit things and, and be able to handle things, which can, can happen when people are, you know, interacting and, and working and, and having class and those kinds of things. So anyway, just a shout out to zoom. Um, I'm glad that they've addressed their security concerns and those are, are really valid. Uh, I think it's been an education for all of us. It's going to be interesting to see how the tools and platforms continue to evolve and grow uh, Google has been remarkably um, responsive, or maybe I shouldn't use that word because they they usually are in terms of working their, their tools and improving them. Um, I hope that they will add a breakout room feature that will really facilitate right. small group collaboration. And I will say just from an integration standpoint, too, although, I, again, I, I, I do defer to Zoom 
in my day job uh, because it, it is a, a, a built-in campus piece. Uh, I love what they're doing with the integration of Hangouts Meets, I'm sorry, Google Meets into uh, the system. For example, they just added a feature where you can uh, join a room or create a room right from the Gmail interface. That is super slick, and I, and I like that quite a bit. And, you know, the simplicity of the functionality. I can't stress that enough, that when an interface has a nice, consistent, and clean interface with relatively few options, the ones focused on, uh, the things most people will do, and then you have to dig a little bit. They need to find the fancy stuff, but for power users and, and even day-to-day users, it's it's a preference to to have a simple interface. I like it quite a bit. And the screen sharing is phenomenally easy. I, I yep. can't tell you how many times I've had teachers uh, as well as students, you know, sharing screens all the time. And the fact that they designed that so that it is not super hard. It, it takes, I think, three or four clicks. And that's it. You're, you're seeing the screen and, and it's really set up well for collaboration. So, yep. um, yeah, but it's, I think it's also, it's good for, uh, us in, in educational technology and those of us that are supporting teachers. It, it's nice for us to have a sandbox to be able to play with different tools. You know, if you only know a single tool, then your ability to make comparisons and, uh, and frankly, you know, give advice to the enterprise and things like that is going to be a little bit more limited. So I think it's good to have dabbled and, and played with some different tools to understand their features and their functions. Um, but, you know, ultimately, you've got to decide as an organization, what are your core platforms that you're going to support? You can't support everything. And, and I think one of the interesting uh, events that's going to be happening as well as seeing what schools actually do in the fall, whether we, we go back in person or it's a mix or whatever, you know, all these tools aren't going to remain free forever. So what then? And, you know, if you're relying on free tools now, um, obviously that's probably where companies want you to be because right. they're going to start having to fork out some bucks. But I think if, if we're not talking about that now and planning for that now, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're, not doing due diligence because we need to be thinking about all the questions in terms of the core applications that we're using and what we're going to be doing, you know, in, in August and September as well. Yep, absolutely. Uh, one other interesting uh, uh, Google-ish article that I think would be interesting to our audience, uh, Chrome Unbox reported, I think this was today, that there is a new feature that is it's still being interpreted by the technology media, but in essence, uh, the Chrome OS is starting the process to slowly separate the Chrome browser from the operating system. And the reason why that is interesting is because uh, and it depends on, there's been a lot of coverage on this in the last 24 hours, but the suspicion is, is that the browser separated from Chrome, the Chrome operating system will actually continue to get updates after Chromebooks are end of life or EOLing, as I've referred to it as work. And so we talked about this quite a bit in the past that uh, one of the challenges of buying a used Chromebook um, or if you buy super cheap Chromebooks is you may be getting, even if they're new ones, ones that are one, two, three, four years old. And initially the Chrome uh, uh, operating system was supposed to last, I think it was four years on hardware and then they extended that to five and a half years, and now it's eight years for Chromebooks sold in, in 2020. We'll have eight years of updates. Uh, I know a lot of district IT directors oftentimes want to plan for the long term when they buy hardware purchases, understanding that they can't spend unlimited amounts on hardware and that if it's a short replacement cycle, that does fairly dramatically increase the cost of delivering hardware or utilizing hardware in a K-12 enterprise environment. But with Chromebooks released in 2020 being eight years old, 
frankly, eight, eight years of service on a computer purchased, especially at the relatively value price of even a medium-end Chromebook, is a pretty interesting thing. Well, according to Chrome Unboxed, it could be that by separating the browser and the operating system, that the browser itself will continue to get updates after the end of life of Chromebooks. I still think that... The Chromebook itself is an exceptional value at, at, at eight years, and I am not a, a personal advocate of the super cheap race to the bottom Chromebook hardware. I think buying something that has at least eight gigs of RAM and an i-series chip as opposed to the Pentium chips that are popular in the low end or the ARM chips, many of which are really slow and, and not particularly friendly for multitaskers. It's a mistake to buy the low-end ones, but at eight years and potentially longer to get browser updates, that's super interesting. And we can just continue with uh, Alex. Google for 500, please. Um, there is uh, This is from the, the G Suite Updates blog yesterday on April 28th. New sharing dialogue for Google Drive, Docs, Sheets, Slides, and Forms. And actually, you know, Google has made some changes more recently to their sharing interface. Um, and so basically what, what the article says it's doing, and this is the one that is rolling out depending upon, you know, what, uh, kind of a release domain. There are what are called rapid release domains that get things the fastest. And so those are going to start seeing this on April 28th. And then if you're on a scheduled release domain, which is probably most people, uh, you're going to start seeing it, uh, starting in May, uh, May 26th at the end of May, actually. Um, but there's nothing you'll have to do. This is a default change. Um, but the old interface, um, it's just they're trying to to make it a little bit clearer in terms of separating user tasks like file sharing and changing permissions and viewing. Uh, and it's also, it says, visually separating sharing with people and groups, which is interesting. Um, they're making the quick copy link really obvious uh, and then easy, more, you know, easier to see who has current access. So that, this is big. It's a, it's, uh, it's really important, you know, in terms of these, the sharing features. I know one of the things I, I lament a little bit with, uh, the old interface is that if you want to do a public link, even if it's going to be not, if it's one that anybody can click, not just in your domain, it's, it's a little cumbersome because by default, you're only seeing folks inside your domain and you, and, and you had to go through a couple more hoops to do that. But anyway, I think that this is, I'm sure well designed by the Google folks and the, sh the sharing aspects of uh, Google Docs is, is really the, the key basic ingredient of the secret sauce. You know, I don't remember, Jason, what, when you saw that first document where, you know, you were um, simultaneously working on, we, we do this every week for the show, right? Our, our links, by the way, at edtechsr.com slash links. Um, and when you were able to simultaneously, you know, edit a document together, <clears throat> there was a program for Mac that was free. And this would have been back in maybe 2002, 2003. It was, and maybe it's still out there. It's called sub edit. But what it did was it allowed your Macs to connect with Bonjour and then you had a shared document and then it would show you colors of everybody in, in their own color. A little bit like <clears throat> that used to be a, a program. Let's see, I ran it on Titan Pad. I'm trying to think of what the name of it is. Um, uh, let's see. It ran an open source program. Um, and so it uh, runs Etherpad. So Etherpad was what it was. So anyway, uh, different tools for being able to do that. And I'm glad to see Google uh, moving forward with trying to better facilitate 
all that. So I'll put a link in the show notes to Etherpad if you if you haven't played with that. It um, the thing I like about that is it has a document building area and then a chat area because yeah. one of the things that people tend to always want to do and my students are are doing this now in the chat area to some degree is they are enjoying just chatting with each other about things not related to the topic. So you can have topic based conversation and then you can have your sidebar conversation over here. So, well, and you mentioned that notion of the first time that I collaborated on a document with someone all and and for those that don't know the background of this, uh, Google docs wasn't actually invented by Google. They bought a product called rightly, which was a, uh, a web-based word processor that uh, the middle 2000s uh, was when that was purchased by Google and that eventually became Google Docs. And to be honest, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't see it at first, right? Like when they started doing the ability to, to have multiple people edit a doc at once, and, and, and I've actually uh, uh, have a funny story from 2008 when I was on the Montana uh, technology standards editing committee. It's where I got to meet all sorts of people that I would, would later be very important in my life, including my coworker, Micah Castanelli, my doctoral advisor, uh, Martin Horaci, uh, Akole Barto, who is the director of the content standards uh, group at our, our uh, Montana public uh, uh, state house, education house. Um, all these people were part of that effort in 2008. And I have this, um, uh, memory of, of 25 of us being in Google Doc at once. It's before they'd worked out some of the kinks in the system, and sometimes we'd lose changes, depending on if we were all trying to add the same doc at the same time. But at first, I didn't really get that piece, but once the power kind of you know, smacked me in the face, you know, I just, I can't, you know, if I'm, if I'm collaborating, I'm working by myself, it, doesn't, it matters less, although I do like the Google Docs interface for writing. But when you're working with someone, I just can't imagine a world trying to try to pass back flat word files back and forth in an attempt to work together on a document. It just it really does kind of meet the dream of the read, read write web as it was dreamed about in the early 2000s. Absolutely. And by the way, how did you land with your dissertation? Because I know I was I wanted to go the Google Docs route, but it was a bridge too far. And so I just had to stick with Word files and send those to my committee. Did you end up doing some Google Docs with your committee? I did. Well, 100 percent of my my dissertation was written on Google Docs. And um, I, I it wasn't it, it wasn't at the University of Montana. My committee was actually very excited for about me using Google Docs. But uh, I did talk to some folks that, that were in the middle of programs at other institutions. One of them, uh, she, she told me that, that her committee told her it would be career suicide was the term that she used to use Google Docs because it's just not done for this type of work. And, of course, I you know tend to be a little bit of a contrarian anyway. So, like, what are you telling me I can't do for her? Um, that it, I, I can't imagine not writing my dissertation on, on Google Docs. And for me, it was because... Like, I loved being able to go any computer anytime, right? Like, I literally didn't have to worry about backing it up ever. It was always in the cloud. I did pull down Word copies, and I stuck uh, cloud versions of it in hundreds of different places, which is the, the great tradition of writing long academic papers is that, you know, you want to make sure you're backing up uh, uh, early and often. But, um, yeah, my, my chair uh, uh, edited a copy in Google Docs. Um, I shared a, a portion of it when I was working on IRB approval. Uh, IRB approval with my proposal was also via Google Docs. I honestly can't imagine uh, writing it without it because it was an incredible experience. And um, I used Paperpile, which is a plugin 
Google Docs and manage all my citations. That was effortless. And, you know, I remember being, you know, uh, uh, places in the wee hours of the morning during the end of this where I needed a citation for something. And I looked up something and I just had paper pile throw the citation. I wasn't using a citation manager or notebook. And because of that process, 100% of my citations were uh, appropriately cited and, and the works cited pages were great. Yeah, I can't imagine. And I, I, I you know, to, to be clear, you can do that same stuff in 2020 on Office 365, right? I still think the, the desktop to web transition is a little clunkier than it needs to be. But if you stay only on Office 365 on the web, it, it has a you know, very similar set of functionality, but I can't imagine writing something outside of a cloud-based document system. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we might have exhausted the Google um, the Google uh, topics. What? Uh, where would you like to go next, Dr. Neifer? Well, sadly, a lot of the other things that we're talking about today are kind of COVID-related. So let's talk about a couple of these. Uh, I picked up a couple articles we didn't get to last week because they're, they're pretty interesting. Uh, the Verge reports on April 22nd that the jury is still out on Zoom trials. And uh, if you are a follower of the criminal justice system, uh, you know that it's been an extraordinary eight weeks. Uh, a lot of, of state judicial systems have made demands of uh, prisons and jails to release inmates that were nonviolent offenders or accused of nonviolent offenses, especially those related to things like individual drug use, in part because of the threat of widespread COVID infections in uh, 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 in incarceration situations, but, um, you know, the court system is a very personal one. Uh, oftentimes trials are conducted uh, in, uh, even with video conferencing available, the preference is still uh, a face-to-face -face trial. Uh, and as it turns out, a lot of judicial uh, branches are attempting to utilize Zoom to get some of this business done. And the reason why I like this article is because it talked about two things. Uh, the, there was, there's been some, you know, awkwardness that comes with video conferencing, right? Uh, the lack of, 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 uh, the ability to easily go in and out of mute, for example, or if you have a distracting background, that could be a problem, those sorts of things. But also it noted that two attorneys, um, uh, were scrutinized because one was not wearing pants and the other attorney was joining from her bed. Like she was in bed, like, like uh, appearing in front of the court. And I think it was a judge or maybe it was a judicial committee warned attorneys that you needed to maintain a professional composure. Uh, courtrooms in the United States are very well regulated. There's a high expectation of etiquette that comes with that. Um, and it's part of the reason why that uh, I totally understand in 2020 during a pandemic that, uh, you know, maybe you don't want to be in your school best as a teacher. You know, I think it's fully appropriate in light of the situation that you're not going to be wearing a suit and tie every day, but you got to put pants on. Right. And also that I, I and I also very much believe this is from my history working at home. Um, I wear comfortable clothes when I'm working at home. Um, I've been changing out between two pairs of jeans and two pairs of, of, of Carhartts because they're the most comfortable uh, pants that I own. But I try to dress up close to what I be working at work. It's not because of, of professionalism, although I, I think it's an important part. It's because when I change into more work-like clothes, I'm in a work mental space, right? I think that's extremely important. And I thought it was interesting that the criminal justice system is struggling a bit with uh, the Zoom platform. 
So two thoughts on that. Did the presentation you gave for NCCE get put on YouTube yet? It did, and I will put that link into the show notes today. Awesome. Yeah, because Jason did a live presentation, which I was not able to attend, on working from home and tips. And so if you want to get the full, you know, complete 360 of, of how you can be completely well and just on cloud nine with your working because you're doing everything right, then... <clears throat> that's the, that's going to be the episode to watch. The other thing I'm going to, I'm going to share this article about the jury and the judge and stuff with my wife. Um, you know, she's a third grade teacher. And so, um, our 10th grader has been a little interested in, in her expectations, but you know, she hasn't wanted her kids to be eating in front of everyone in class. She hasn't wanted them rolling on the floor. She has wanted them to, you know, not just be in bed, um, you know, come to class prepared and <clears throat> have have a level of expectation that, hey, guys, you know, we're in class now and uh, we need to make sure we're, we're doing our best and we're giving our attention and all those kinds of things. So I think she'll probably find that amusing and might even share that with the third graders to say, hey, look, you know, out out in the real world, outside of schools, which I don't know that that's the right way to say that. We are all in the real world, but, you know, in the world outside of school, as well as inside school, we've got expectations of professionalism. And so that's a great, great example to share. And let's see here, uh, maybe a couple other quick, quick ones. Oh, great Time Magazine article on April 22nd. And I thought this was pretty interesting. Um, obviously, video gaming is, is on the rise during this time. People are stuck at home. Uh, and, and have relatively few social outlets outside the home. And I thought this article was, was pretty interesting. It was kind of aimed at parents, but basically, hey, uh, if your kids are gaming a lot during this time period, don't feel bad. In fact, join them is, is the context of this particular article. And um, a lot of this has to do with the fact that uh, if anyone that's got kids in your home or you yourself are playing Fortnite, you know, how of, of, of a kind of community building experience that Fortnite is. It's a lot of the way kids socialize, um, uh, even, you know, three years after that game was released. But this notion that, that if you haven't been a gamer in the past, maybe now's not the worst time to give it a shot, uh, both because there is a lot of perceived advantages of gaming, but also there is community there. And if you're struggling for community, although I will say the, the, uh, kind of cultural advantage of having a pandemic in 2020 is there is an infinite number of tools if you want to connect with people that you can, but gaming communities are just one of them. So on that note, I would uh, share a shout out and maybe, maybe you'll be the one to, to share it, Jason. Um, but you know what? I'm not a real big gamer. Uh, I've been a little tempted. I know civilization is, is a great game. Uh, we did activate the trial for the um, the Apple gaming platform uh, because we've we do have an Xbox and those controllers will now work you know with with Apple and we just there's we've struggled a little bit I think we would have been better off getting a Nintendo Switch probably anyway just we haven't found a ton of games for, for on, on Xbox so if anybody's got any uh, family friendly games and uh, specifically games that you know Wes might play with his daughter Sarah she's the main one we've been you know doing some gaming with. Uh, yeah, let me know. Reach out on Twitter. Um, so we're gonna, I think we're gonna, they, we're, we're in a golden age, absolutely, for this, right? Because, uh, more platforms than ever. And, you know, is it called Stadia, which is Google's platform that's a cloud based? Yes. Uh, yep. Have you played with that or messed with that at all? I've not. I've read quite a bit about it. Um, I am more of an old fashioned gamer. I guess, you know, full PC desktop games is where I spend most of my time. In fact, uh, most of the, my, most of my gameplay is, 
20 year old games like Half-Life, but, uh, Stadia looks really interesting and, uh, it, it's got a relatively low hardware investment. Yeah. I mean, and the Apple gaming platform is, you know, it's like all of $5 a month if, if you are going to invest in that. So. And I seem to have lost Dr. Fryer. So I will just repeat a couple quick pieces here in regards to the gaming piece. If you're interested in, in learning more about gaming, uh, obviously, if you've got a desktop or laptop PC, that's an extraordinary way uh, to be able to engage in that. Um, otherwise, uh, mobile gaming is also a really easy and quick way to get access to less so community gaming, but interesting ways to delay uh, uh, and distract your time. Welcome back, Dr. Fryer. Yes, don't accidentally close the tab of your video conference when you are using a browser-based video conferencing platform like StreamYard or uh, Google Hangout Meet. So, all right, uh, I'll say I think I dropped a COVID article in there, um, uh, a couple of them. So there's a really good Psychology Today article uh, from April 15th. What will it be like when the lockdown lifts? Um, we had a wonderful school psychologist or not school psychologist, she's just a psychologist, she's a New York Times columnist, um, give a couple webinars for our parents the last two nights. Uh, and so anyway, I've been, you know, a little bit more focused on uh, mental health, you know, questions and, and resources and things like that. <clears throat> One of the things this article, you know, brings out is um, this is just going to take time. This is not going to be something that is is going to be quick. Uh, the insecurities and the anxieties that folks feel, the, the things that are happening health-wise, not only to ourselves, but to other people that we know. Um, and, and this, I don't know, if, I think you might have mentioned this, maybe you did in your, your NCCE presentation, but, you know, the H-A-L-T acronym, HALT, uh, check if you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Um, and, uh, you know, limit your new, your, they don't call it media diet, they call it news feeds. Uh, but anyway, that was, I thought, uh, a good article on the wellness front, which, you may think, well, hey, that's not really technology, but absolutely, you know, taking care of ourselves and figuring out how to be doing remote learning and remote work uh, and, and remaining well, that is, that's really job number one. And then the next article I dropped in was from the Oklahoma Department of Commerce. Like Montana, um, there are some folks in the state of Oklahoma very eager for us to just open up the floodgates of social interaction and let's all, you know, get together. And I'm being a bit... Um, hyperbolic with that uh, because they are they are talking about taking it in stages but this is the department of college for business owners uh in terms of of rules and, and opening things up uh you may have noticed my hair is looking a little long and so i have been holding off we do have a dog trimmer which i have threatened to use uh or you know anyway but my my uh the, the woman who, who does cut my hair is going to be trying next week to reopen her salon under these guidelines it's going to be interesting. Um, and so, uh, we are not in a position where we're, we're widely testing everyone yet and we're not doing the social tracing and all that kind of stuff. So, um, really remains to be seen what's going to be happening. The advice that our, um, our psychologist, uh, presenter shared, especially with seniors and kids going to college, but everybody, whatever you're doing, thinking about school, she was like, let's, let's wait till July. You know, we're really not going to know uh, for sure, you know, probably next week, what things are going to look like. Um, there is a tremendous economic incentive for colleges specifically to figure out how to do this well and to, uh, you know, make the experience worthwhile. Uh, some people I think have expressed some concern wondering if there's going to be this huge, you know, uh, 
growth or, or large, you know, bubble in, in gap years and kids that don't go to college right away and, and are waiting. Um, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. And hopefully what we're going to do is going to be safe. <clears throat> but, um, you know, I've, I've been able to really through Facebook, uh, read several different accounts of, uh, you know, what it is like to get this. And, and, and it's different for different people, obviously. Uh, but it's certainly nothing that I want to have anything to, to do with if I can avoid that. And it's going to be interesting to see what kinds of guidelines schools are going to set up and, and how this transition, which somebody's called, it's not a switch, it's a dial, you know, but how is this going yeah. to be dialed back and forth? Last night on Netflix, I watched a great Vox explain, uh, Vox explained, uh, about coronavirus. I think it was trending as like the number four thing on, on Netflix. It's, it's just about half hour long. Really, really good historical take look at pandemics and uh, really nice graphs of of both the lethality and the how contagious you know different uh, different pandemics and and diseases have been and uh, it's going to be interesting. We've got a lot of smart folks working really hard to get that vaccine out. So hopefully, hopefully that will happen sooner rather than later. But I haven't read any or I haven't heard anybody saying it's you know it's going to be happening next week. It's gonna it's going to happen next month. People are saying it's it's longer than that. Okay, and then one other, uh, actually one other quick article that I thought is kind of interesting. Uh, when you talk about the dial instead of the uh, instead of the switch, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot personally is that I am well engaged in the medical community because I am a kidney transplant recipient, which means that I, I do stay pretty close, uh, 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 pretty close contact with my my team that helps monitor my health, and I have not been to see a doctor since during this started. I, I'm not due to see a doctor at this point. Actually, I, I should see a dermatologist at this point because I uh, one of the side effects of transplant medications is you have increased uh, chance of, of skin cancer. So I am due for a dermatology appointment sometime soon. But great article on CNN Business that telemedicine could really make it into the mainstream due to the COVID-19 situation. And I'll admit that if I needed to see a doctor right now um, for something that didn't require a physical examination, I would, in a heartbeat, engage in the telemedicine process. And, uh, for example, I need to see my kidney doctor, and if they were set up in that infrastructure, I'd see one in a hot second. And, in fact, uh, I know that uh, uh, Providence Medicine is the uh, uh, network that I'm in, a network of, of, of medical providers, and I think they're located throughout the Pacific Northwest, but uh, when this first started, uh, before they they were kind of set up, that was the way you could get a coronavirus test in Western Montana, is to see a doctor via telemedicine and discuss your symptoms. And so uh, that's something that uh, I thought was really interesting. So, you know, again, there are, you know, literally endless numbers of institutions that are, are likely to be impacted this in short and long term. But I think it's really great that things like telemedicine could become another great choice uh, to engage in the medical community, even if you don't have the, the physical ability to do so um, and provide that service. Let's uh, hit a couple media literacy articles. Um, I started reading a new book tonight, and it is all online, published openly on a very cool platform that I had not heard of before called PubPub. MIT has an implementation of it. Um, the name of the book is You Are Here, A Field Guide for Navigating Polluted Information. And I learned about this via one of the other participants from the Digital Literacy Academy that I attended that Renee Hobbs and others put on up in Rhode Island. Uh, and the authors are Whitney Phillips and, and Ryan Milner. 
Um, this is a, a great analysis so far of uh, what they call, you know, network pollution and the ways in which uh, we've talked about this, this idea of the weaponization of social media, um, the ways in which memes, um, culture war, um, you know, journalism, uh, there, there's, there's so much that we need to understand. And I was talking to our younger daughter this week about Gamergate, which happened back in 2014. She really didn't know about that. And uh, as a young lady who has now taken some coding and we're encouraging to, you know, continue to pursue that, that aptitude and that interest, man, there's just super important things that we need to to be able to, to understand and have a working knowledge of to be able to talk about and discuss. So I think this looks like a great text and the fact that this is openly licensed and just available on the web. If you want to download it as an EPUB or something, you can, but it's got really cool features, you know, in terms of the um, citations and stuff like that, that, that you can pop up and, and things are being updated. I mean, the, the first uh, initial introduction, you know, was actually updated, I think, yeah, two days ago. And so, Super, super cool. And not only from the content side of that, but I think also thinking about publishing, thinking about writing, um, you know, the, the art, the old ways of, uh, of publishing journal articles and all that are still important and, and they're a part of the landscape. And, you know, if you are and want to be a tenured faculty member, then those are things that you have to attend to today. Uh, but I think these kinds of publishing platforms are are certainly on the cutting edge of where we can be with uh, academic publishing and other forms of publishing. And on a media literacy standpoint, it's, you know, that's great to check out. And then the second article I'd mention um, is from the New Yorker. This is an older one from November 22nd, but it's called Samantha's journey into the alt right and back. And I've been doing a bit of podcast listening to, uh, in, in fact, Jason, the article I think you shared either two weeks ago or last week about we should be concerned about YouTube, talking about the ways in which, you know, folks can be drawn into some real rabbit holes and, and can be radicalized and, and, and misinformation, disinformation, or what this article about you are here says, or this book says, you know, malinformation, which would be information designed to harm intentionally. Uh, man, we are, we're in an incredibly hostile environment, not only with regard to security and the ways that people want to hack us and they want to get our information and steal our money, but in the ways that they are competing for our mind and trying to convince huge numbers of people that there is not truth and that all sources are invalid, that media and journalism is bunk. I mean, there are incredibly... Uh, damaging and dangerous agendas that are being advanced today. Uh, and, and as educators, it is incumbent upon us to be understanding this. I, I, I asked, I was talking to my daughter tonight about this and she's like, what is, what do you think literacy is? And I said, well, it's being able to both access and understand information as well as communicate it in the medium of today. And that means hyperlink digital interconnected media, uh, as well as other kinds of publications. So that is my media literacy rant. Um, have you been, have you been uh, reading any more, you know, media literacy stuff? Cause I, I really appreciated that YouTube article, the one about YouTube that you mentioned. Um, it's one of the best listens I've had in a while. Um, and that podcast series, I've listened to both of the, the episodes so far that's come out by that author. Well, it's of no doubt that in 
in in 2020 that the amount of information that that exists uh, even in in well-crafted google searches is a real mixed bag on accuracy and uh if you're not taking the opportunity and i i think i repeat this every two or three weeks now on, on the podcast if for no other reason then i think it's an important way to look at this youtube is not uh i'm sorry youtube and google well, actually any search engine really they are not libraries right they are not curated content repositories that uh, can be trusted to provide you accurate information without analysis. And, um, you know, I, I, I well, I mean, I, I think there's been uh, case studies in the last eight weeks regarding a coronavirus outbreak that really help, uh, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, provide some, some insight on why this is so important. Um, I, I am interested in, I think we mentioned this a couple of times, I'm interested in seeing that Platforms are starting to step up a little bit to provide guidance, right? Uh, apparently, YouTube is going to start um, uh, highlighting uh, when things are are disagreed with by experts. I, I think we either had an article a couple weeks ago or I just recently read it. I know Facebook is stepping up a little bit. Um, some of this feels a little too little too late in regards to this is not a 2020 problem. This is probably a 2000, you know, uh, 12, 13, 14 problem for us to, to, to consider. But if this is not a part of your basic shtick and, you know, also too, the, I mean, I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the notion of, um, of, of, you know, utilizing the internet for research, right? That's not what I'm saying at all. There's an extraordinary trove of information on the internet, but, uh, you might be tempted to allow students or, or, or guide students to, you know, kind of find their own answers. That's okay. I think it's an important part of being media literate in 2020. But if you're not given the second half of that equation, which is the ability to analyze and then start, you know, verifying things with mainstream sources, then I, I think it's 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 like handing a kid a kid uh, a lit stick of dynamite and and not you know uh, giving them a sense of what to do with that information. So, uh, you know, researcher beware. Absolutely. Well, okay. yes. Let me, the one other article I want to go over, and I see we're uh, actually very quickly tonight heading towards the top of the hour. Uh, interesting article in Time Magazine, and the only reason why I'm mentioning this is because my organization was targeted by a phishing attack last week. Uh, like I'm sure actually almost all schools uh, have, have, have dealt with this in, 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 in the COVID era, but great Time Magazine article about ways that people might be um, uh, 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 targeted for scams out of their stimulus check. I have not yet received my stimulus money from the government in part because uh, we are taking advantage of the three-month extension on our tax returns, so we will not get that until that, that is a, a holdup for, for, for us, and so uh, luckily we are in a position where we do not desperately need that money, so uh, that uh, is something that has uh, uh, pre uh, prevented or made that discussion moot for us but there are apparently large numbers of, of, of attacks based on stimulus-related calls, emails, text, uh, uh, language that, that seems kind of, sort of, um, uh, uh, semi-official, trying to get people to put in things like Social Security numbers and PIN numbers in order to access uh, a stimulus check-related information. And... You may or may not yourself be savvy to this, but if you are savvy, uh, then share this information with your parents or 
brothers and sisters or members of your family that are not tech savvy. And I will tell you, last week, uh, uh, I was digging around my spam folder. I was looking for an email back from, from a parent, and I noticed a, a weird-looking email that was supposedly from my boss, and the email was the most legitimate-looking phishing attack I have seen to this point. It was basically an email from the boss saying, hey, hey, I need your help. You know, and the the, the email uh, uh, address back was like executive director, uh, you know, eight nine four one two at gmail dot com, and I I would have spotted that right away because I know DMO, but several of our teachers uh, received the email as well that may or may not have a regular interaction with our executive director, and it was signed. You know, our executive director's name and executive director. And, uh, you know, no one was, was caught up by that. I, I was almost tempted to answer back to see if I could get a sense of what the scam was, but decided since I'm an administrator in the program that that was too much risk. But, um, you know, uh, be careful out there, kids. I just dropped a link into our show notes that I, I shared recently with a, a member of our church who uh, is, is an older woman and <clears throat> had had some emails, uh, obviously, that, you know, were being compromised. People, people were, were threatening, trying to blackmail, just, you know, what do, what do I do? Um, so a, a few weeks ago, this was back in March, I think on the 26th. I shared a one hour webinar called protecting yourself and your family online. Uh, and I'd actually sent her that link and she watched it and then she had tons of questions. And so anyway, um, we're going to get together again virtually on Friday to talk more about that, uh, in terms of passwords and, uh, password managers and <clears throat> things that we've, you know, talked about repeatedly on the show. And we, we really can't say that enough, right? If we're not if we're not safe, if our families are not safe, if, if we're doing things like using repeated passwords, especially passwords that have been compromised, and if you've been using a password for years, chances are it's been part of a hack and it's out there. So, you know, stop using that password and, and go in and use the, the watchtower feature of one password or whatever the other features, whatever they call it, where they're actually checking to say, oh, look, you have this many repeated passwords. You have this many, you know, compromised yep. passwords that, that you've used. So good reminder there. And also just don't, don't think that any of us are, are so smart, especially that if we're not targeted, we can't be tricked. The social engineering methods are, you know, are just continuing to proliferate. And, and with, with any kind of crisis, uh, people are going to try to exploit that. And they definitely are trying to now. And they're going to continue to do that because the stakes are, are high and, and we're doing a lot of commerce online. And so people are, are being able to, to get money. And, uh, yeah, it's important to protect ourselves. Yep. Absolutely. Well, uh, yeah, let's pick up. Let me let me do another one before we go. Uh, I thought this was fascinating. I put this under miscellaneous. Ars Technica, April 27th. Supreme Court rules Georgia can't put the law behind a paywall. Uh, as you may know, if you've done any kind of legal online work, LexisNexis is huge. And basically the law libraries that you would typically see in movies and things of all these books. I mean, it's all been replaced by digital at this point in terms of, I think how most lawyers are doing their, their research and the state of Georgia. And then other States have done this as well. <coughs> not only um, had their law, uh, the, the laws on the books, but they also have annotations and additions, interpretations that state officials and judges have made, um, 
that that uh, that LexisNexis is just a commercial entity has put online, and basically they uh, there's a, there was a lawsuit filed to say no, this this can't be locked up behind a paywall. This is this is the, the property of the people. It was a five four Supreme Court decision. And it's really fascinating to read where the justices were landing on this in terms of intellectual property and uh, just, you know, pretty fascinating. I mean, I personally uh, really don't like paywalls for academic publishing. You know, I think that if you are publishing as an academic, uh, absolutely, you should have that. Uh, paywall free on on your own website and on other places. And I think there's really some folks working at cross purposes with the whole idea of scientific research and research in general, which is to get that information out there, allow other researchers and academics to access that and scientists, because that's what you want to know. You want to know what other people have done so that you can read their work and you can build on it or replicate or, you know, test and all of those kinds of things. So Pretty fascinating article. And anytime we've got a 5-4, you know, Supreme Court decision, I mean, it's, you know, let's pay attention. What's going on here? And it was really interesting. I think one of the, um, the interesting things was that it actually was a young justice versus older justice decision uh, in terms of how the justices lined up. And it wasn't just along traditional party lines. Uh, so good, good victory for the cause of not only having the law, but also the interpretations that state officials make about the law open so that everyone can access it. Pretty interesting article there. Anything else you'd like to pick up, Dr. Neifert? Uh, let's see. Um, no, I think I'm good, actually. Okay. So shall we give it a weekend? Let's do it. We're almost to the top of the hour. So um, I'll start off with, with mine. Uh, first, I put a link to the webinar uh, that I conducted last week for the Northwest Council for Computer Education regarding work at home. It's about 30 minutes long, um, and it's if you've ever seen me present at a conference before. It's the similar fast-paced uh, um, uh, style that I like to do, but uh, great feedback from that. And if you listen to that and have any feedback from me, I'd love to hear that uh, uh, back on Twitter. And then I did something this weekend. I was looking for a nerdy project. I have no end of nerdy projects I like to do, but this one actually turned out infinitely better than I thought it was going to. But I found some instructions over the weekend on how to install Chrome OS, not one of the manifestations of Chrome OS that that, that exists. For example, you probably heard me talk about, if you listen to the podcast before, about Cloud Ready, my favorite uh, kind of Chromium OS alternative. It's, it's uh, actually something I use at home quite a bit, but... I had an older laptop lying around. This is a 2004 edition of the, maybe even a 2003 edition of the Lenovo X1. I think this is the second generation of the X1. Um, it's a decent laptop. It's thin. It's relatively light. It has 8 gigs of RAM and an i5 chip in it. And um, it's it's fine, right? It runs Windows fine, but I like Chrome OS, as it turns out. And there's a wonderful instructable that takes you through the process of building a flash drive based on a Chrome OS download for a relatively uh, recent uh, Chrome OS version, and then it walks you through the process. It took me about 30 minutes to turn your laptop into a legit Chrome operating system. It receives updates from Google, and it has the Google Play Store to install Android apps. And so uh, it's probably not an enterprise kind of thing. This is not a way to create cheap Chromebooks or anything in your school. You, you should use Cloud Ready for that, which has a, a licensing cost. But if you're looking for a weekend project and like to play around with stuff, I was amazed to see it work, to be honest. And uh, the Instructable is, is there that goes through that process. 
Fantastic. Uh, I've got a couple. Uh, one I just saw tonight. It's a lovely video uh, called Reuters Thanks to Journalists in the COVID Era. Really powerful. I think I'll share that with my students in our next set of lessons just from a, a media literacy, you know, check this out. Look at the visual storytelling here. Um, second, we're going to have all of the Air Force bases here in Oklahoma do flybys on Friday between 9.30 a.m. and 10.15 a.m. over all the major uh, medical facilities, hospitals in our area. And I, I don't know. I would guess they're probably going to head up to Tulsa and do that as well. Uh, but we've got uh, Altus Air Force Base. We've got Vance Air Force Base, a training base. We've got Tinker here. And so we're pretty fired up about that. So we're going to drive probably about five minutes from our house uh, across in a parking lot, practicing social distancing uh, from uh, Mercy Hospital, which is one of our local hospitals. Uh, and that's going to be pretty cool. And then, uh, so if you're in Oklahoma, that's, you don't want to miss that. And then the last thing, I have become aware recently, uh, and I say recently, in the last five to six months, um, of a really, really great platform, I think, for online book publishing, uh, where you basically pay $99 and they will host your book online in a web version uh, forever, or I guess as long as their company stays alive. That's called Pressbooks. Um, and I've been working on a, a book there for a while that I'm hoping to finally get finished in maybe the next few weeks. And then the other one I learned about today is called Pub Pub. And that's where that media literacy book, You Are Here, A Field Guide for Navigating Polluted Information, is actually hosted. Uh, both pretty amazing. And they're web-based. And, you know, we, we've talked about on the show, and, and there's dialogue between apps versus the open web. Uh, I really do think that the robust power of the open web is fantastic and we need to be keeping an eye for that in terms of you know we don't always know what students are going to have what kind of device maybe they're just going to have the web uh the web browser they're not going to have you know an ios device or a mac or whatever like that so if you are interested in publishing books especially if you're interested in openly publishing in the case of pub pub um, but you know you can also license in different ways with press books those are worth checking out so that's that's what we got. And I think we're uh, basically just off over an hour. So we've done it again, Dr. Neifer. How have we not run out of things to talk about? Yeah, ain't that the truth? And, you know, uh, would also mention we rarely get through all the links in a given week. If you want to find out what else was uh, kind of catching our interest from the technology media, www.edtechsr.com. You can go not only download uh, the, the, the episode, but you can look at the other links. So, uh, Dr. Fryer, where can people find you on the vast internets? Well, rumor has it I'm on Twitter every once in a while on uh, W. Fryer and my blog, speedofcreativity.org. The digital and media literacy curriculum that I use for middle school is available on mdtech.cassidy.org. And I'm continuing to update our instructional technology support uh, resource or instructional support site, uh, which is support.cassidy.org. And we're having more uh, webinars there, and we have a, what we call a Genius Bar page there. So every week we're I'm sharing a couple couple webinars. In fact, tomorrow is about Explain Everything. And uh uh, we're doing another one on Friday that I'll have to look at the topic because it's not, not coming to my mind right away. How about you, Dr. Neifer? Uh, I heard you have a web presence. Is that true? I do have a web presence. That is correct. Uh, you can go to my GeoCity. No, wait. Uh, you can go to Twitter at TechSavvyTeach. Uh, I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, blog.ncc.org is my location there. But speaking of web presences, EdTechSR is available in a variety of locations. You can go to our YouTube channel. Uh, we are available for download wherever 
Fire podcasts are aggregated. It includes the Stitcher directory, the Apple podcast directory, the Google podcast directory. And in fact, uh, I do check out different podcast uh, apps uh, as they are released. And uh, you can find us everywhere at this point. So if you want to join us live, we are here on Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central Time, sometime in the middle of the night. If you want to join us from Europe, you should just download us if that's the case. Or you can go to our website, edtechsr.com, check out show notes, links, and if you want, download tiny, tiny audio files to listen to the podcast. We hope you join us next time on EdTechSR. We thank you for listening all the way through to the end of our podcast. We hope you stay safe and stay savvy. Good night.